Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. Today is Friday, December 11th. We are recording the show that will air on Sunday, December 13th. Uh, my name is Teresa Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, everyone? Hello. Hello. Hey. How's it going? You know, hanging in there like most weeks recently. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nothing, yeah. I can't complain. It hasn't been too bad. Right. That's good. You know. Yeah. Each week hasn't been too different from the other for the last few months. Right. It's all know? kind of running together, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so this week we'll be discussing a tribute to all of the closing businesses in NYC. Uh, the winner of the Goldman Environmental Prize, Brandon Bernard's Execution and Hunger in Crises in Latin America. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local segment. Emily, what do you have for us today? All right. So, yeah, this one's pretty sad. So, you know, just prepare yourselves, guys. Um, so this story comes from a recent Curbed on like magazine, I think it's, I read it online, um, series called titled Farewell to the Places That Made New York What It Was, a send off to the many places, big and small, that closed in 2020. It was written by the editors and mostly credited um, with contributions from a bunch of other people that I'm going to try and, you know, cite them as I quote them. Um, and again, I'm going to rely pretty heavily on quotes because everything is just so beautifully written. So Carl Swanson writes, if you quote, if you live in New York long enough, and it doesn't have to be very long, it gradually gradually becomes unrecognizable. It's too big a city to live in all of it, so you find your corners and your go-tos. Sometimes they are long running, but mostly they come and they go. It's part of the Darwinian self-alienating thrill of the place. More often than not, you outlive your landmarks. And later he writes, uh, but what if this change happens all at once, like when that asteroid hit the Yucatan 20, 66 million years back? The vertiginous churn the city is experiencing right now is so destructive, so widespread, so implacable that it is, like so many things in 2020, describable only as unprecedented. The Partnership for New York City estimates that roughly one third of the city's 240,000 small businesses may never make it to the post-vaccine promised land. And he also writes, uh, quote, this year we have devoted New York's annual Reasons to Love New York issue to a celebration of the go-tos that have closed since the pandemic struck. Awake for the places that defined our lives here, that gave us community and let us try on new identi identities in return for our money. The bars where we came together for after work drinks, the boxing gym where everybody thinks they're in an action movie, the gallery that trusted you to build a cloud, the coffee shop where you were left alone to read, the restaurant with the full bar where you'd find yourself trying to eat after an all-night bender, the place that was so of its moment that it became a relic and then deservedly an icon, all gone. And sadly, probably more to come before the city returns to its purpose, a place of gathering. And finally, Carl writes, quote, and then eventually the city will be reborn, maybe cheaper, less branded, less leveraged, more DIY. Tribeca is no longer one of the top 10 most expensive zip codes in the country. That has to mean something, right? Or maybe as after 2008, the well-capitalized will buy out the undercapitalized, and, and it will all just get to be more like it was already becoming, a city of unremarkable $80 brunches and minimalist shops that don't seem to sell anything in particular. 
The one thing we know is that it will be different, more foreign, more new than anything we have seen before, if only because the sheer volume of what it is to of what is to come will have to fill in for some of what has just been lost. Whew. Um, for some additional context, Eater New York has a what it calls a running list of New York New York City NYC restaurants that have permanently closed, um, and it last updated that list on November 25th, and the list explains more than eight months into the coronavirus pandemic, restaurants across the city continue to lose to close en masse. At least 1,000 have closed since March due to the financial downturn caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. So the curb list includes a broader range of closed business types, not just restaurants, but knowing that like 1,000 have already closed as we're going into a winter that's, you know, no one's predicting is gonna be too good. Um, I think helps sort of paint what that picture is looking like. Um, And so in deference to this loss, which brings along with it a loss of vibrancy, community, and independent business in the city, I'm going to read off some of the recently closed places highlighted and curbed, um, some of which I have a personal connection to as well. So here we go. Uh, Gem Spa uh, in the East Village. It first opened circa 1921, and it's an icon of a corner store, um, or was... Uh, um, Diana Stort, descendant of the founders, writes, quote, family legend is that my great grandpa Nathan invented the egg cream. He made the chocolate sauce with a secret recipe in the shop. Thus, Gem Spa became known as the birthplace of the egg cream. End quote. Oh, oh. And more recently, not end quote, more recently, it was a bodega selling drinks, bongs, magazines, and in the summer, an extensive selection of cheap sunglasses. Um, Next up is Lord & Taylor. Uh, On the Lower East Side, it first opened in 1826. Quote, America's oldest department store, tracing its origins to a small dry goods shop on Catherine Street. And quote, in August 2020, the store announced it was closing all its remaining locations. Uh, Century 21 in Bay Ridge first opened in 1961. It was a department store that had expanded to, quote, 13 locations, but went into Baker bankruptcy liquidation in September. All branches were closed by December. Staten Staten Island Yankees in St. George first opened in 1999. It's a whole damn minor league baseball team, which played at Richmond County Bank Ballpark. Joe D'Alessio writes, quote, now the Staten Island Yankees have been eliminated as part of a restructuring of the minor leagues. Even in a best case scenario, any new team won't be affiliated with the Yankees or any other big league team. And fans won't get to watch future hometown stars early in their careers. The worst case scenario is the stadium remains empty, save for the occasional college matchup, and we lose one of the most pleasant ways to watch a professional ball game anywhere. Um, The Creek in the Cave closed, a comedy club in Long Island City, which opened in 2006. Uh, Blossom, which was a a vegan restaurant in Chelsea that opened in 2005, was a place that I personally loved going to to pick up some vegan lunch on my lunch break for when I worked in an architecture firm around the corner. Um, Jimmy's Diner was a restaurant in Williamsburg that opened in 2007. And this place for me about a year before or so before my grandma died, um, I picked this place for uh, my parents and grandparents to meet me and a friend for brunch. Um, Since we're all, you know, we're like a diner family. And it turns out it was actually like a very punk and loud indie sort of diner restaurant. Um, But the food was great. And it was a weird and sort of fun time. Uh, Maha Rose Healing Art Shop in Greenpoint, which opened in 2007, also closed. 
Um, I had a friend who hosted what I think she called a sound bath experience there. It was sort of like a meditative thing, I think. Um, it sounded really cool. <laughs> I never got to go. Um, Mission Chinese is a restaurant on the Lower East Side that opened in 2012. Uh, then She Fell was a theater in Williamsburg that opened in 2012. Uh, the New York Times called this, quote, an immersive theater experience at a former hospital that incorporates scenes and characters from Lewis Carroll's writing. Um, and I actually had the first roommate I had, or the roommate I had at the first apartment that I was at for more than just like two months in New York City, actually was a dancer with them. Um, and I never got to go. It's a bummer. Um, Butter and Scotch was a bar in Crown Heights that opened in 2014. And this one stings. It was this amazing female owned bar slash bakery where you could like sit at the bar and order a shot of whiskey and a slice of delicious like homemade birthday cake or like a boozy milkshake and like chat and like, you know, flirt with the bartender, like all of it. Um, they, they closed the bar, but they're still actually shipping baked goods and other sorts of stuff on their website. So hit them up, support them. Um, and the last one I have on this list is a restaurant called Egg um, in Williamsburg that opened in 2005. And I met a former coworker slash casual friend there for lunch a few hours before my ex of eight months dumped me via text. So, you know, it's got a lot of memories associated with that place too. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, That's like a bad one. I know, but you know, it's still like every time I have I was only there once, right? So that place. That's <laughs> oh, deep. Man. Yeah. I know. We all have places but, you know, like that. Exactly. Like, you know, Jimmy's Diner, I only went once, but I associate it with like that really weird brunch I had with my family. And, you know, there's a ton more places. Do you guys have other places that you associate with that sort of memories? Uh, the diner on 14th Street. What was what was it called? The Was it the diner or... It was like in a lot of movies. The one on oh, Union Square. Yeah. The coffee shop. Yes, the coffee shop. Yeah, mm -hmm. I have many memories there. I know it didn't just close, but um, mm -hmm. that's one place I have those kind of special memories mm -hmm. for. I'm sure there'll be much more as, as the year goes by, for sure. I mm -hmm. haven't um, emerged from quarantine, really, to take stock of places that are not here anymore that I used to frequent. Like, so a lot of my memories about stuff like that is like places I used to like that have been gone for a while. Um, so yeah, it'll be pretty surreal. Like once it gets warm again and people are moving around more, I think I'll notice it um, more in my day-to-day -day life, but I can't really think of any at the moment. Yeah, I actually, I'm on a, on a very similar page, Jasmine. I have been so hot, trying to hide myself away and, you know, keep people safe for so long that I really haven't, like, I, I didn't know so many, a lot of those places had closed um, the same way until I was reading um, in the article. And there's just so many. I, I didn't expect to, I, don't, I guess it's hard to realize how many places, like if you're in the city, and the article writes that too, like if you're in the city for a certain amount of time, you, you have some casual places you know, you have some favorite spots that you get to know over time. And it's just crazy that so many are closing all at once. You know, like there was a ton of places I hadn't been to yet that I'd been planning on going to. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Like, that's always such a bad feeling. Like, and it's something that existed before the pandemic, especially when you're talking about restaurants and bars. It's so hard for them to make it in New York, period. You know, like, so if you don't make sure that you go, mm -hmm. even if it was a staple, 
like I used to like um, Temple Bar a lot down near like going towards like I guess well not Tribeca but downtown and they were around for like over 30 something years and then you know the owner passed away it went under new management and then like these two like long staples that have been around before I was born are just gone you know so it's it reminds me of that, um, I think it's either a book or a website or both like Vanishing New York, where they've been like for years yep. keeping a, keeping track of all the places, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're like these touchstones, like where you grow up or, you know, if you've been familiar for a very long time, it's like, yeah, that's always going to be there until it's not one day. And it's, it, it really yeah. mirrors like how the pandemic is as well. You know, it's like, yeah, everyone passes away, but it's the clip of it and the intensity of the numbers all at once. It's not normal. Like, Right. And, you know, spots that were booming, right? Like certain restaurants that were having no problems, you know, being full on a given night are now like really struggling to, um, what, what is interesting is that the intro that I read at the beginning talking about how Tribeca is no longer in the top 10 most expensive zip codes in the country. I didn't know that. And I didn't expect that. And it is interesting to think about it. Like what, what's the, what is the after going to look like? Um, you know, there is, I think definitely the fear that it's going to become even more homogenous than it already was becoming or seeming to become with the more, you know, independent coffee shops being replaced by Starbucks and because, you know, conglomerates have um, more capital and it's easy, it's safer for them to open new spots, right? Like they, if one place does bad, it doesn't mean the whole business is going under. Um, You know, it's, it's going to be interesting. And yeah, I, I hope the city, you know, stays, is able to uh, stay, you know, at least a little bit, unique in in that sense you know what I mean moving forward but we'll see yeah I think time will tell and it's a very old city that's been through a lot so you know there was the flu pandemic a hundred years ago there was what like the 70s when things were really terrible like with the trains and the Bronx burning so I think New York is going to still be New York no matter what, but it might be a while before it gets mm-hmm. back to something we kind of recognize. Like, I hope there's a positive change as well. Like, maybe mm-hmm. there'll be more people that don't have a lot of money that see some kind mm-hmm. of opportunity and are able to, you know, because a lot of people have left. The rents are going down in a lot of areas mm-hmm. where it used to be impossible to find a reasonable place, so... It might right. go a more affordable way. city. It could go the mm-hmm. other way instead of, you know, going towards the big businesses. So, yeah, fingers crossed. crossed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I keep wondering, like, will it ever be the same again? But I'm trying to focus that what was was very difficult. You know, the fact that we've all lived here for as long as we have and worked so hard. Life is so different from where we're standing now. And to go back to that level of hustle and bustle, I feel like the people in New York just need a break but the vibrancy in them is still really strong and resilient so it's sad to hear these places are closing but hopefully what's on the horizon is something better you know for the people that still remain here yeah more equitable maybe a bubble yeah. has burst you know and it'll be a more egalitarian city who knows exactly 
Well, that's what we can hope for. Thank you so much, Emily, for sharing that story. Um, a heartbreaker, but a, a, a good one. Um, so we're going to go ahead and take our first musical break. I was a little nostalgic listening to your story, Emily. So I, I picked this track uh, based on that. This is Alicia Keys with Empire State of Mind, part two, broken down. This is the slower version of our favorite New York song, or one of my favorites. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And Emily has an update 
from the station. What you got for us? So if you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, there is a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. Um, City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods, and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out their website at www.cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. Back to you, Teresa. Thank you. All right. So we're going to go ahead and jump into our national news segment. Jasmine, what do you have for us today? Okay, so this article is from the New York Times, and it was written by Haley Fuchs. Uh, The title is, The Justice Department Executes Man for Murder Committed When He Was 18. So the Justice Department executed a man, a Black man, named Brandon Bernard by lethal injection on Thursday for his part in a 1999 double murder robbery when he was 18 years old. Brandon Bernard is the ninth man executed by the federal government since this July. Um, As a side note, this is not in the article, but um, the Trump administration did something unusual because this is the first time in 130 years that a federal execution was carried out during a presidential lame duck period. The last time that happened, it was um, under Grover Cleveland, I believe. So back to the news story, though several of his accomplices in the plot who were younger than 18 were sentenced to time in prison, Mr. Bernard, who was an illegal adult at the time, was eligible for the federal death penalty. In his final days, Mr. Bernard's supporters, who is now 40, they pleaded with President Trump to grant him clemency. Because he was a teenager when the murders took place, His case revived questions about imposing the death penalty on young inmates convicted of violent crimes. Among his final words, Mr. Bernard apologized to the family of the couple he had killed and for the pain he caused his own family, according to a report from a journalist in attendance. For his role in their deaths, he said, I wish I could take it all back, but I can't. I'm sorry, he said, looking at the witness room windows. That's the only words that I can say that completely capture how I feel now and how I felt that day. The mother of one of the victims, Georgia A. Bagley, in a statement with family and friends, thanked Mr. Trump and the Justice Department. She called the crime a senseless act of unnecessary evil. It has been very difficult to wait 21 years for the sentence that was imposed by the judge and jury on those who cruelly participated in the destruction of our children to be finally completed, Ms. Bagley said in the statement. After the execution, Ms. Bagley told reporters that she forgave Mr. Bernard and his accomplice, Christopher Vialva, who was executed in September, saying the apology helped very much heal my heart. So uh, this is some background on what the original crime actually was. Mr. Bernard was convicted and executed for his role in the killings of Todd and Stacy Bagley, 
They were two white youth ministers visiting Texas from Iowa. Mr. Bagley agreed to give a ride to the young men who approached him, according to testimony in the, t- in the case. Three men got in the car, but after one of the three gave Mr. Bagley directions, they pulled two guns on the Bagleys, robbed them, and forced them into the trunk. At this point, Mr. Bernard had separated from the group. The alleged ringleader of the crime, Mr. Vialva, who was 19 then, insisted that the young men needed to kill the Bagleys. After Mr. Bernard and another accomplice bought lighter fluid, four of the young men, driving in two cars, took the victims to a remote spot on the Fort Hood military reservation. Mr. Bernard and Terry Brown, who was then 17, poured lighter fluid on the car's interior, and Mr. Vialva shot the victims with Mr. Bernard's gun, killing Mr. Bagley and leaving Miss Bagley unconscious, according to the Justice Department. According to them, Mr. Bernard then set flame to the car. So Bernard was the second federal inmate to be executed since Election Day and one of six scheduled for execution by the administration during the lame duck period before President-elect Joseph R. Biden Jr. takes office next month. In a break with Mr. Trump, Mr. Biden has said he will work to end the federal death penalty. Um, And this is um, an aside that I found on NBC News. According to the Death Penalty Information Center report released in September, Since executions were reintroduced in the United States in 1977, nearly 300 Black defendants have been executed for the murder of a white victim, while only 21 white defendants have been executed for the murder of a Black victim, the report said. Earlier this year, while the center notes that white men made up the majority of the defendants who were executed by the federal government, The victims in those cases were also white. So that's the end of the um, NBC portion. Bernard was pronounced dead at 9.27 p.m. on Thursday at the federal prison complex in Terre Haute, Indiana, according to the Bureau of Prisons. Alan Dershowitz and Ken Starr, who served as members of Mr. Trump's defense team during his impeachment trial, joined Mr. Bernard's defense team on Thursday and asked the Supreme Court to delay his execution. Dershowitz said he spoke with the White House about Mr. Bernard's case, but ultimately the president declined to act. The Supreme Court also denied Bernard's application for a stay on Thursday, with the three more liberal justices indicating that they would have granted the stay. Um, Bernard had hundreds of thousands of supporters who sent letters to Mr. Trump to call for his clemency, according to his defense team, including Kim Kardashian West, who had previously um, lobbied Trump for clemency in another case. She also called on on the president to spare Bernard's life. In a statement, two lawyers for Mr. Bernard maintained that their client did not kill anyone and several jurors said they no longer stood by the initial verdict, along with an appellate prosecutor in the case who joined the call for his clemency. 
despite claims from his defense that the government suppressed evidence that would have altered the calculus of Mr. Bernard's sentence, courts rejected his pleas for a stay of execution. Um, for, I'm not going to um, read the rest of the article. There's a lot. There's a lot more information here. But in her dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor argued that if the prosecution had not withheld the evidence and knowingly elicited false testimony, as Mr. Bernard claimed, there is reasonable probability that he would not have been sentenced to death. She also contended that it, that an appeals court that denied Bernard's motion in a case related to the testimony got it wrong and required too strict a standard that perversely rewards the government for keeping exculpatory information secret. Bernard has never had the opportunity to test the merits of those claims in court, she wrote. Now he never will. So that's the end of um, the New York Times article, but it reminded me of there was an exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum a couple years ago called The Legacy of Lynching, Confronting Racial Terror in America that was set up by the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, their website is just eji.org. And um, there's a lot of interesting information on there about the connection between the death penalty, mass incarceration, and the history of lynching um, in the United States. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I think we were kind of in the same boat there. That was a lot of information. Yeah. It was, it was well reported, Jasmine. I'm just, I'm like absorbing. There's just so so layered. It elicits so it's so layered. It elicits so many emotions. Yeah, I, I try not to go too long, but when I was reading that, um, and Haley Fuchs is the reporter, um, F U C C H S. Um, it was it was hard to know like what to sort of skip over because it all seems relevant. I think all the details you shared were relevant. Um, I don't think you could tell that story from, from what you told me. I think every, I needed to hear all of that to really get a good picture of it. Um, it's just, you know, it feels like, I don't know. There's, it's this poor, it's, you know, the legacy of capital punishment in this country is, it's so fucked up. Right. And also I didn't know Biden had pledged to end it, which is awesome. Yeah, I mean, it but, also brings into relief that had he been granted a stay, it would have been pretty likely that he would not have been executed. But right. this insistence on, no, we're going to, like, do this. So I I had read that Trump was, you know, there's all this stuff about Trump pardoning all these people. And there's a lot of news about that because, you know, it's this mad dash to pardon his children, pardon preemptively pardon all these people, like, whatever. Um and then I think my mom told me he's also like he was also rushing to execute people. And it's yeah. just it's so it just feels so evil. Like what you're rushing like just to get this under your name, like a notch in your belt. It's it's disgusting. I mean, well, it is it is it is evil. And let's not forget that this is the man that took out what the front page of was it the Times calling for the Central Park Five to be executed. Yep. Yep. All those years ago. So this has always mm -hmm. been what he has been. Um, mm -hmm. Right. Children at that in that case. Who were yep. innocent. You know, I, I will yep. say that this is definitely a I personally have so far in my life. I haven't lost someone close to me to this type of violence. 
So it's it's very easy to say how I would feel because it's not me. But it's really the you sharing the details of the case, I think, is also important in that sense. Right. Because the story he well, it did. You said that some of the lawyers were saying he didn't actually kill anyone. He was just there. Is that right? Or yeah, like I, I don't. There's other articles that go into more detail about his case, but his defense is saying that he wasn't the one that actually shot the per. Like mm-hmm. the person um, that shot the gun was a different person. Like I think it was his gun, and then he like poured lighter fluid or something. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't the one that actually right. killed the people. Or that's the argument. Right. I mean, and, you know, the I I wouldn't even know where to begin on, like, you know, questions of guilt in a case like that. But I think I think sharing the details of that, which we don't we don't often do on the show, I think. But I think it it adds important context to the story because I think you're right. Like, you know, understanding why a victim's family would be so on their on the side that they're on I think is important to understand how things like this happen sometimes um but again I mean I just I don't think the death penalty should I I hate it so much and I think um I don't know it's just not the the starting point for me no not at all the end point I don't know and it's it's you know I feel like there's a lot of these sort of like backdoor things happening that we may not be aware of as he's, you know, exiting the White House right now. But definitely, I feel like there has been, like, less coverage of um, these sort of stories over the years. It's been so much to report on, don't get me wrong, but um, there hasn't really been a lot of spotlight to the dealings of executions and how it's going in this country. So, um, yeah, this is really sad and Wow. It's very sad and if you see if you see images of him he's like smiling. I think he if I'm not mixing him up with someone else like he has started like a crochet club or something for the men on death row that they were really into and you know I'm I'm someone that I do believe in rehabilitation. Um I don't I can't speak for the family of the people who have who were killed like that's obviously inexcusable but I will say that I think that the true test of how we function as a society like you have to look at the people that you think are the worst of the worst because unfortunately I think what happens is in a case like this they'll take something where a lot of reasonable people would think like, well, yeah, like a life for a life, like you're guilty. It's obvious you're guilty. You did this. So that justifies this system. But then you end up justifying like this entire machine that is just like a death machine, you know, like it's depriving people of healthcare. It's getting people caught up who are innocent. It's condemning people essentially to an early death, like because of the conditions they're in for something they did as a teenager. And how many dead black people have we talked about on this show and the people that kill them are getting, you know, overtime or whatever. So even if you do think like, oh, this is justice, like look at how uneven, how unevenly these things are applied. Like that's not right. 
So, you know, that's part of why I wanted to share it because it's not always about like, oh, so-and-so was innocent or with other issues, like such-and-such was a good immigrant. Like, no, you have to look at the people that maybe they did some shit you don't like, but what are you willing to excuse or legitimize because of this person? It's it's questions of justice versus vengeance. And it also reminds me of... um, I, I was at a funeral once and I don't remember if it's specifically a Jewish phrasing or comes from Jewish Judaism, but there's, you know, this phrase saying like, may your sense of mercy outweigh your sense of justice or your need, you know, and I, it's, it's sort of, I like to keep that in the back of my mind with most things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful expression, but yeah, like we have to really think like what type of world do we want? if the purpose of these places is to rehabilitate people and someone has shown 10 times over that they are not the per- the person that committed the crime what does it serve you know so i'm it's unfortunate for his family and i i do still feel for the family of the victims as well like that's a horrible way to lose anybody but um this system is not the way you know it's not the solution it's extremely biased it's not it might feel good to some extent, but that's not what real justice is about. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for bringing that story to light, Jasmine. Definitely something that I think we've talked about maybe once or twice on this show, but definitely could use a lot more discussion. So I'm sure we'll have that in the future. We're going to go ahead and take our next musical break uh, before we jump into the international and good news segment. Uh, The next record is a beautiful jazz track by a group called Go Go Penguin. Uh, They have been called the Radiohead of British Jazz. So this song is called Petite La, live from Studio 2. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll hop right into our international news story. Um, So there's two stories that I'll be reporting from today. The first one is from NPR. Uh, The author is Jason Buben. And this is about uh, Latin America facing a hunger pandemic. Um, So from that article, Latin America is facing a pandemic of malnutrition. Hunger and obesity are rising side by side in the region. And the working poor who can't afford a nutritious diet are suffering from, at times, a lack of food and others, an overabundance of poor quality food. A new report from the Consortium of the United Nations Agency finds that a number of people experiencing hunger in Latin America has grown steadily over the past five years. Their report analyzes data through the end of 2019 prior to the arrival of COVID-19. But the social and economic inequality that are leading to malnutrition in the region, the author says, has only gotten worse during the pandemic. So we're going to jump over to another article. This one is from NPR, um, and it specifically focuses on um, Maduro blocking the UN food aid crisis to Venezuela. And the authors from this article are Fabiola Zerpa, Ezra Fajer, and Nicole Yapur. So a deal to allow the United Nations Food Agency to bring aid to Venezuela has been stalled as President Nicolas Maduro insists on controlling distribution. The agreement, negotiated for eight for eight months, would permit the UN's World Food Program and international aid groups to bring food into the country, uh, only with um, Maduro being at the lead of distribution. Negotiators reached a tentative deal with the government around two months ago, but Maduro's administration has yet to implement or assign the deal. And the issue uh, based on this article is saying really just the control of the aid. Uh, the article talks about how he also wants his national militias involved in the distribution, whereas the World Food Program contends that they can only be involved in security and not the procurement and delivery of the food. So the World Food Program requires neutral, non-political distribution, and Maduro wants um, all of the distribution channeled through networks that he controls, uh, including one that would deliver uh, food boxes to the poor, uh, possibly from different agents within the government. Uh, an official in the opposition says Maduro may be holding out until the U.S. president-elect Joseph Biden takes office next month to use this agreement as leverage for a reduction in sanctions. It's unclear if the deal can be resurrected, and its collapse is another blow to the international community's attempt to respond to the humanitarian crisis of malnutrition and um, just a lack of resources to Latin America. Maduro's government has imposed limits on non-governmental organizations and threatened to shut down those who receive financing from abroad, alleging they are conspiring against the government to aid groups that work on food distribution, um, which provided meals for over 25,000 people have been harassed and their bank accounts have been frozen and offices raided. Um, So this is really sad. Um, Obviously, There's a lot of problems going on in the world, but malnutrition in uh, Latin America and in the Caribbean has been an issue um, for a really long time. And a lot of times, you know, it's these complex situations with government. Um, I can only imagine how much it has actually been influenced by the restrictions from COVID-19 for all of us to just be able to move uh, fluidly through the world. But when people are facing, you know, a global pandemic plus malnutrition um, and just us not having enough access to the resources they need um, is really unsettling 
to know that the organizations that are designed to try to help are facing these sort of challenges um, from this elected government. So yeah, definitely. What do you guys think about uh, this complex issue? Obviously, you know, we can't really jump in and tell the country how to handle these resources, but you would think that in a time like today, obviously getting humanitarian aid to people who are um, so overwhelmingly at a lack of resources is really important. This isn't, this is the first that I'm hearing about um, this latest issue, but I am very skeptical, of, especially when you consider how the U.S. uses sanctions against other parts of the world to try to get them to do what they want. Um, I'm skeptical of seeing it like, oh, like Maduro is just being some big asshole. Like apparently he has a program that he established in 2016 called CLAP or the Comité Local de Abastecimiento y Producción. That's like government supported within Venezuela where communities supply food themselves and distribute it in a house to house way. So it looks like the U.S. is trying to get him to stop doing that. So I don't know. It's like on the surface, it does look like, oh, shit, like that's terrible. They're stopping the U.N. from doing this good thing. But I I think that, you know, smaller countries have a reason to be wary of like outside organizations imposing something that tends to come with like strings attached or you have to dismantle something you're doing within your own country first if right. in order to receive the aid you know yeah i understand that i definitely feel that you know it's two sides to every story and we're not exactly sure what's happening um on the ground unless we're there but i just wish that there was more sort of um just just possibilities to work together because obviously whatever distribution right. they have on the ground there uh it could work if there was maybe more communication or a better understanding of how to work together um with the organizations so a lot of times you know reporting on these stories from outside the country may not give us the full circle and i agree with what you're saying why wouldn't they want their people to not be malnutritioned you know <laughs> But it's just such a challenge. And that's my dog, Layla, in the background. I think she agrees with me. <laughs> Hi, Layla. <laughs> yeah. What are you thinking? Thank you, Teresa, for reporting that story. And also, Jasmine, adding, you know, reminding us of that, uh, the important, like, contextual history of American and U.S. and South American relations and how they're, it does not, it is not favorable, does not make the U.S. look good when you actually um, learn about the um you know the u.s getting involved in governmental affairs down there um which is good important context but i i also i also agree with Teresa's point and i think that um the it what does suck is that between all the political like the u.s very well might be at fault there right the political reasoning for why they're doing it is probably ulterior motive, you know, is likely to have ulterior motives in um, a lot of situations. But um, yeah, at the end of the day, like there's real people who need help. And for whatever reason, um, there are certain resources that they can't get that, um, and that sucks. Um, and it sucks when 
people become pawns in like a larger game um it's really terrible and it's also it's hypocritical because like Mnuchin is saying like oh the Venezuelan government is using the food program that they have as a form of propaganda and to only reward people that support the regime when the person in the White House right now was basically on television insinuating that like federal aid wasn't going to go to certain states because they weren't red states. You know, it's yeah, like that's very absolutely. that's happening right here before our eyes. Like there's an epidemic of people shoplifting right now because they're hungry. And the people in charge of this country are playing games with instead of providing people with aid right now mm-hmm. in Congress. Absolutely. You know, exactly. It's really, yeah. it's really. And as you're saying, it's like it's all the regular people, whether it's here or abroad, that get trampled while the people at the top are going to be fine. And they're like using you like a football. Meanwhile, you're hungry. Exactly. And, you know, these complex situations, because um, that's, you know, that's, I guess that's what they call them, complex situations, right? Why, why, would, why would the government of Venezuela want their people to suffer? You know, so I think to your point, Jasmine, um, there has to be ways to actually consider the people who really need the, the help. And there has to be some broader context to what works for that country. I mean, that's just one country in South America that's facing um, this crisis. But definitely, you know, the people at the top should get out the way and provide the resources to people when they need them. It doesn't matter where it's at. It's just so many people are suffering right now. And to, you know, have hunger and, you know, the inability to get resources when you really need them, especially during times where the pandemic has taken over all of our lives. It's just really unfortunate. It really, really is. Like, I know this, I used to do translation for a place that had an office in Venezuela and I in Caracas and things started to get really bad then I just I reached out a few years ago just to ask like how they were doing and the response I got was very demoralizing you know like people are really really suffering and you know it seems like there's no relief in sight there's no end in sight you know I don't know everything about Maduro's government I don't know the ins and outs, but I'm sure there's some level of corruption there. And then you have outside interference for ulterior reasons too. It's, it's really, it's heartbreaking and so unnecessary. Absolutely. Um, Well, all right. Well, after that, we definitely need some good news. So Emily, please brighten us up with your story. I'd be happy to. Um, So it's regionally also similar region, which is cool. So um, this story comes not not the same region. I'm not trying to be ignorant like that. But anyway, this story comes from a December 6th story on the Good News Network titled uh, Indigenous Women Woman Wins Goldman Environmental Prize for Protecting 500,000 Acres of Amazon Rainforest. Um, the story explains that, quote, Indigenous Amazon leader Nemante Nenquimo, Nenquimo Uh, just won the world's foremost award for grassroots environmental activism for her organizing work to save Ecuador's rainforest. Uh, Namante is a 33-year-old woman, and she not only co-founded the, I think it's pronounced Cebo Alliance, C-E-I-B-O, but, quote, organized Weorani communities, held regional assemblies, and uh, 
launched a digital campaign targeting potential investors with the slogan, Our Rainforest is Not for Sale. Quote, Nankimo led an indigenous campaign and legal action that resulted in a court ruling protecting 500,000 acres of Weirani territory in the Amazon rainforest from oil companies. Nankimo's leadership and the lawsuit set a legal precedent for indigenous rights in Ecuador, and other tribes are following in her footsteps to protect additional tracts of rainforest from oil extraction. The Weirani people, numbering around 5,000 5, today, are traditional hunter-gatherers in this pristine rainforest that overlaps with the Yasuni National Park, which, according to the Smithsonian, may have more species of life than anywhere else in the world. Uh, so the Goldman Environmental Prize is apparently known as the Green Nobel, which is cool. Uh, it was founded in 1989 and goes to one activist from each of the world's six inhabited, con- inhabited continents every year. So six prizes total per year. Uh, what I found so awesome about this story is not just the environmental protection Namante was able to accomplish, but the fact that an indigenous woman was recognized for her work in such a huge way, um, which does not happen very often. Um, congratulations to Namante and the Weirani people and all the indigenous people um, fighting to protect their land. Awesome. Yeah, congratulations. That's, that's a great story. Thank you so much. I know. That was a good one. A good yeah. One. Yeah. <laughs> I love the good news. It's always such a, a, a bright light for us. Um, definitely. So thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you to the Good News Network because they have become my go-to. I like, I know I'm going to find something on there that is actually good news and not just like flippant, you know? Yeah. So. Absolutely. All right. So before we close out the show, we're going to let Jasmine give you some updates to our social media where you can find more information about our show. Okay. So if you like listening and you want to keep in touch with, you know, what we're doing, we often post like links and articles so you can read more about what you hear us discuss on the show. We have a Facebook page. If you go to facebook.com forward slash objection radio free bk there's no spaces so facebook.com forward slash objection radio free bk that's our facebook page um we also have a fundraiser going on right now for the radio station so this is community-based radio none of us are paid we're all volunteers and we need your help to keep going So if you go to our Facebook page, you can see and support if you'd like. Facebook.com forward slash Objection Radio Free BK. Our Instagram handle is at the at symbol at Objection to the Rule, all one word. Um, And we similarly put up links and um, updates and things on our Instagram as well. So, yeah, check out our socials. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Uh, you've been doing such a great job on that, definitely. So please follow oh, us. Thank folks. you. Yeah, you've been holding it down, girl. I think that's great. I love I love saying that. Her, inst- her Instagram stories are so I know, good. they're I, so great. Every time I opened it, I was like, our show has a great Instagram, so people should check it out. And I, I have nothing to do with it. It's As far as I know, it's all just Yeah, every once, oh, in a while, wow. every once in a while, I'll contribute to the Facebook, but you've really definitely taken our Instagram up a notch, and I really appreciate it. It's so cool to see that. So good job. Oh, don't her. blow my head up. Really? 
You're doing great, man. You're doing great. <laughs> you exactly. It. You gotta, you gotta give it. credit where credit's due, you know? It takes it takes but all of us know, to do the show. Listeners, don't take their word for it. See for yourself. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. So that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify or anywhere you can find iTunes podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track of the day is a holiday tune. Yes, I did that. Oh, <laughs> this is Jesus, What a Wonderful Child by Stevie Mackey, The 11 and Take Six. We'll see you next week. Bye. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, ooh, 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 oh, what a wonderful child. Ooh, Jesus, oh, oh, Jesus, oh, 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 so lonely. Ooh, 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 Jesus, 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 oh, 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 Mama, my, my, my. Jesus. my.